I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. In the 1940s, programming was viewed as women's work. However, as electronic computing matured, the proportion of women working in this field declined. Mar Hicks, author of Programmed Inequality, explained why programming was viewed as women's work and how the labor conditions in Britain and the perception of computing pushed women out of the field. We talked about the role of programming during World War II and how women were using computers for this. Mar also explained the impact that forcing women out of the tech field had on Britain's technological power. This month, we're doing a book giveaway, and it will be Mar Hicks' book, Programmed Inequality. To enter, write a tweet to Tech Women Show about why you like working in tech, what you like to see improve in tech, or a technical blog post that you wrote. I hope you like the show. Mar Hicks, historian of technology and gender and author of Programmed Inequality, How Britain Discarded Women Technologists and Lost Its Edge in Computing, is with us today. Mar, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. I want to begin this conversation with a quote from your book that says, in the 1940s, computer operation and programming was viewed as women's work. This was happening in Britain and is sadly very different than what we're seeing today because we don't have a lot of women in technology. So I want to understand how did women start to work on this field when it was viewed as women's work? Well, unfortunately, the reason it was viewed as women's work is because people hadn't yet realized how important technical work was. And in the UK in particular, but also in the United States and in Western Europe, there was a perception of using machines and automating work as um, you know, something that took skill out of the picture. And so something you'd see in a lot of industries, like everything from textiles to typewriting, you would see that when machines get introduced, the field gets feminized because the idea is the machines are de-skilling the work. And so when uh, computers were new, both electromechanical and later electronic computers, the idea was, well, you know, we'll just have women do these jobs because it's relatively rote, unintellectual work. And then as people started to realize, especially as male managers started to realize that really wasn't true, that's when the gender of the field has this sudden change. I see. And can you talk a little bit about the kind of programming that they were doing? Sure. So early on, women are doing not programming, but a whole lot of other things that would be subsumed under, you know, nowadays would be subsumed under other job categories like QA and hardware assembly and testing and systems analysis or systems administration. So because, you know, things aren't 
professionalized yet. People are kind of inventing things as they go along. You know, women are writing programming manuals as they learn to program these new machines. They did pretty much everything. You know, they had to do everything. They had to not just program and operate computers, but a lot of times troubleshoot the hardware as well. And so the kind of programming that they were doing could range from very low level programming in terms of, you know, being very close to machine code or even in machine code to as the period, you know, goes on and we get into the 50s and 60s and 70s, higher level, you know, programming languages start to come in. And that makes people's jobs a lot easier when they can use these tools, these higher level programming languages. So what they were doing was, you know, in many ways similar to the stuff that we're doing now, but it was still kind of the the wild west of computing. So everybody was trying to figure out how to do what needed to be done. And what you're saying is, well, at the beginning, the fact that a machine is doing these things makes it seem like you don't need skill because it's not particularly your hands that are doing the work. You're just getting the machine to do it, analogous to the clothing industry and you're saying these women were doing a lot of low-level programming, which was not easy, right? Yeah, not easy at all. In fact, I would say low-level programming, which, you know, as you know, it's called low-level, not because it's lower skill or lower in difficulty. It's just called low-level because it's closer to the machine. I think that is, in many ways, way harder because you don't have the tools that, you know, we have now that will help, like, correct your code or check your code or, you know, all of the libraries and stuff that you can draw upon to make your coding, you know, process faster and more reliable. And the, all of that gets developed later. Um, it gets developed in large part by a lot of women who are programming software. But yeah, it's a tough job early on. It's certainly not any simpler than later. You know, it's not like things were easier and that they get harder. And that's why women, you know, somehow can't cut it. That's not what happens at all. But yeah, like you say, there's this perception that using machinery and work almost makes it sort of working class. Like in the British context in particular, there's this real class bias against using machines of any kind. And in fact, they call it, you know, the industrial revolution in the office. And managers say, well, women are good in um, light industry, like in manufacturing. So as machines come into the office, we'll just have them working on those machines as well. So they totally misunderstand the power of computers and the complexity of working with computers and programming at this point in time. In addition to that misunderstanding, did the media have a role in marketing to getting women to work with computers? I would say yes. I would say it's kind of cyclical or they sort of media discourse kind of feeds off reality and instructs it. By that, what I mean is women are being favored for certain jobs, right? So hiring managers are hiring women for these particular jobs because they think this is the workforce that is suitable for this sort of work. At the same time, computer companies 
know this and they're picking up on this and so what they do is in their advertisements for computers they always show women working on the machines and they go so far as to have like women mascots you know how maybe not so much anymore but at least when I was a sysadmin there would be you know what were called like booth babes at computing shows and at you know Usenics and stuff like that and so there's this use of women's images in advertisements to say look these are the people you should staff your computer installations with and it's not just about putting pretty faces next to the machines but also saying you don't have to pay them as much because women were still you know paid far less than men they're not as unionized so there'll be an easier labor force to handle and you won't have to the idea is that you won't have to train them as much either because women have higher turnover in the labor force at this point in time and so all of these subtle advertising messages just kind of make it even more likely that hiring managers are going to continue to hire women for these jobs instead of saying, well, oh, hang on, maybe these are jobs for men and women. Yes. And also during this time, as these women are being led to this industry through media and through assumptions that the work is easy and that they work well with machines. An important site called Bletchley Park was crucial for code-breaking operations during World War II. Can you give a bit more context about the type of work that was going on here? Yeah, Bletchley Park was sort of like the center of the British wartime intelligence establishment. And so what was happening at Bletchley Park, as you know, a lot of people probably know from Alan Turing and the imitation game and all that, was that very smart people were sent there to help the British government break codes. So break the codes that, for instance, the German military high command was using to communicate with their armies in the field in order to try to figure out what the enemy's next move was. And women were working at Bletchley Park, not just because it was wartime and that a lot of men were at the front, but also because there was this pre-war association of women with computing, with electromechanical computing. And so at Bletchley Park is actually where we get the first digital electronic programmable computers. They're designed during the war specifically to help speed code breaking because what's happening is that there's so much volume of intercepted encrypted messages that it's very hard to decode them fast enough to actually make that decoded information actionable or useful in the context of military strategy. And so these electronic computers, which are called the Colossus computers, they start with one, but by the war's end, there are 10 in all chugging away day and night to break codes. They basically allow the British to sort of brute force code breaking. In other words, they had previously had to rely on all of these sort of little mathematical tricks and also had to rely on the Germans making errors when they sent transmissions. And these errors would oftentimes help the British break the codes. But as the war gets into its like final, really tough stages, they can't rely on that as much anymore because the Germans are becoming more careful. And so these electronic computers allow them to break codes break like the daily encryption in a way that just would have been totally impossible it would have had it would have taken thousands of man hours previously to do this and in a very real way you know the first digital electronic 
programmable computers, they're weapons of war because the second Colossus machine, for instance, it actually ensures that the allies know where and when to land for the D-Day offensive. And so these computers actually change the course of World War II. And this is all during a period when the best electronic computing technology in the United States is still essentially in a testing phase. So this is you know, I usually don't harp on technical firsts, but this is a really important technical first because it actually means something. It does something in the wider world. It actually changes geopolitical events. The fact that these computers are created at this point in time and put into use. And the women who are, you know, working with them, again, they're doing everything from assembling them to troubleshooting, operating and programming them. They're incredibly important to the war effort. Mm -hmm. Would you say that during this time, Great Britain was the leader in technology and computers? Yeah, they were undeniably the leader in computing technology, because like I said, they had actually used computing technology to help win a war. Yeah. And they have these women behind the scene working on this, figuring out the enemy's next moves. Can you talk a bit about the backgrounds of these women? Had they previously work with machines or did they just sort of get recruited into this? That's a really interesting question. And that brings up this issue that I think is really important that this is not just a story about gender, but it's also a story about class. Most of the women who get recruited to work at Bletchley, so the Colossus operators are considered, you know, kind of a cut above. They're recruited partly because of their, you know, intellectual and academic background, but also largely because of things like social recommendations coming from the right part of society, coming from the right class in society. And as far as I know, they are also nearly all white. So there are all of these overlapping categories of difference and privilege that kind of put women and put these particular women into these roles. And this is analogous to what we see today. There are some conversations about getting more women in technology and programming, but within that branch, there's subdivisions. There's more Chinese women, more Indian women. We also need to, you know, get more Hispanics, right? So it's analogous to what was happening back then. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Race and nationality are huge factors then as now. Mm -hmm. One thing that I found surprising from reading your book is when I saw that after World War II and working on these computers, women were sort of prevented from continuing to work with machines. Can you talk a bit about why that was? Sure, yeah, it was interesting because it wasn't a gradual change or sort of an evolution where women slowly get pushed out of the field. It was actually pretty quick. And a lot of times people think, oh, well, the war ended. And so of course women went back to the home, right? Because they had only been in these jobs because there was a war on and men were at the front. But that wasn't the case. They had been placed into these positions because prior to the war, these positions had been feminized. And after the war, um, even though the Colossus computers are kept top secret and most of them are broken down, women 
do carry over into parts of, for instance, government computing. So they actually do carry over in a way. And through the 50s and 60s, women are actually still doing this work. But then at a certain point in the late 50s, early 1960s, there's this sudden flip. There's this sudden idea that on the part of management and the people who are doing the hiring for these jobs, that these women workers are no longer suitable because managers are starting to understand that computer work is actually pretty important, that it's complex and that computers are making more and more decisions essentially. And so they want people to be in these programmer roles and be in these computer operator roles who can manage other people, who can manage machines as well as they can manage employees, for instance. So they want manager caliber people to be doing the technical work. And this doesn't explicitly necessarily exclude women, but in an era when basically everybody who is a manager is a man, saying that you want management caliber people in technical roles pretty much effectively gets rid of the chance of women to go into these positions. And that's exactly what happens. And it happens really suddenly. And women who are in the field at the time remark upon it. A lot of men remark upon it as well. And the only reason it sort of seems like it maybe seems to us now to be a gradual change is because when, for instance, the British start to institute this change, what happens is they suddenly realize, oh my goodness, we don't have enough people to do this work because we're getting rid of all the women with the technical skills and we don't have men to replace them with. And in fact, men aren't really interested in going into these jobs because these jobs have been feminized and seen as de-skilled for so long. So they're kind of afraid of, of going into this work. So that means that for like this kind of brief period in the mid 60s, everything is sort of in flux. And that's when you actually get a lot of women who either stay in computing or kind of get to come into computing because there's this labor shortage. And that's where you see a lot of really interesting stuff happen. Mm -hmm. By flux, I'm not familiar with that term. Do you mean it was sort of frozen during that time? Actually, the opposite. Everything was just kind of like changing very rapidly and kind of messy. So whereas um, managers in government and industry are saying, we want to get young men into these positions, they're also realizing we don't have enough people to do these jobs if we only focus on young men. So what they'll do is they'll put out advertisements, job ads, for instance, and they'll be asking for young men and they won't get enough. And so then they'll put out another job advertisement and say, okay, we'll take either men or women. We will train either men or women. But the really interesting thing here is that while they're simultaneously saying we'll train women to do these jobs, they're recruiting different sorts of women than the women who are already in the jobs. They're saying we want women who are sort of of a you know, a middle class or higher than middle class level to come in and potentially be able to have a career in computing. But the women who have the technical skills who are already doing the jobs, they're seen as sort of too low level, too almost working class, and they're getting pushed out. Mm -hmm. Was this the woman that you sort of describe as more upper class and white and 
I guess, a little bit privileged. Is that correct? The women who are who are sort of coming in in the mid 60s, yes, I would say that for the most part, they have like a higher class profile than a lot of the women who are already in the jobs. Because a lot of the women who are already in the jobs, like I said, it was almost just seen as like just one step up from doing light industry, like manufacturing work. But things start to change at this point in the 1960s, not just in terms of the gender of the jobs, but the class status of the perceived class status of these jobs starts to go up. And so it's no longer seen as, you know, kind of like getting your hands dirty to work with the computer. It's actually seen as prestigious. Mm -hmm. One thing that I'm really curious about all this work that you did and this research, if you had a most shocking thing that you uncovered while you were doing this. Yeah, yeah, there were definitely a few shockers. And the first shocker was, so I did a lot of the research for this in the National Archives. They're just outside London in the UK. And because there was just so much material to go through, what I would basically do, because I didn't have a lot of time to be there, I would just kind of flip through these files and I would take photographs of every single page. And you can probably imagine that as you're doing this, this gets really, really boring. You know, if you get to read the stuff more carefully, that's interesting. But if you're just taking photos as quickly as you can, because you know, like you have to get on a plane in three weeks, it gets super dull and super demoralizing. And so every time I got like a really thick file, sometimes I would just be like, oh my goodness, I do not want to have to photograph this entire thing, you know, standing in place for like an hour or more. Yeah. And one day I was looking through one of these really thick files and some parts of it contain like memos and notes and typescripts. And then other parts, they're sort of like, you know how sometimes there are meeting minutes, there were minutes, but minutes for the file. So they were sort of like notes on the file and they were kept in handwriting and the handwriting was often like illegible. And so at this particular point, I was in a rush and I was like, look, maybe I'll just skip that section, the minutes for the file, because like I can hardly read it anyway. And I'm just, I'm running out of time, but I decided not to. And when I went back to that file and I struggled to read those meeting minutes, that's where I found the example that I actually started my book out with, where there's this computer operator and programmer who is really good at their job. Their managers say, you know, this person has a good brain and a special flair for programming. And then in the next set of notes, their manager is saying, so after this person trains these two trainees that have no computing experience, we're going to demote this trainer into an assistantship position below the new trainees. And of course this happens because the programmer who's doing the training of these new recruits is a woman and the new recruits are men. And she's basically just having to train her replacements. And then they're going to put her into an assistantship position. And they actually say in the next set of notes, they say, you know, she'll just remain an assistant until she leaves to marry. And then they actually crossed out Mary and they put, wrote in if she leaves for any reason. So clearly they were just kind of, you know, 
having her train her replacements and show her the door and they were being complete. And that was a real shock because for the most part, I was seeing these changes occur through not like personal examples, you know, through huge swaths of workers. And this was a very, very personal example. And I just thought that really sucks. Like that really must have sucked for her. Yeah. Sometimes that person also ends up reporting to their replacements, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I found, you know, shocking is also all these preconceptions of getting married and having a kid, right? This also affects not being able to get those jobs, right? Yeah, exactly. The whole idea was that even though this woman wasn't yet married, they just assumed because they assumed everybody's straight. And if people are straight, they're going to do certain things, which isn't true. But that's what everybody sort of was pressured into doing, that she was going to get married at a certain point, And then she was going to have to give up her career because that's unfortunately how women were taught to live until fairly recently. You know, a lot of women had to give up their jobs in order to have families or really had to struggle if they were going to try and do both. And um, interestingly, this dynamic of women getting pushed out of the workforce when they had families is how the UK ended up with one of its most important software startups and one of its most important computing entrepreneurs. And her name was Stephanie Shirley. And what happened was she essentially had the same thing happen to her where she gets kind of pushed out of the workforce because she, you know, she bumps up against this glass ceiling and she decides she's going to start her own business. And she was one of the very first people to understand that software would actually be a product, that it was something that you could sell on its own. Because up to this point, software was just something that came along with the mainframe. It just came along with the computer when people bought the computer. But she says, you know, no, I think I can actually sell software as its own thing and software, writing software as a service. And that was actually like really revolutionary at that point in time. A lot of people thought that was not something that would work as a business model. And she makes it work. And one of the ways she makes it work is that she actually hires all of the other women who are getting pushed out of the workforce who have these technical skills, but can't keep their careers because they need like, you know, childcare or part-time working arrangements and employers just won't give them those things. And so Stephanie Shirley says like, look, as long as you have a telephone at your house, you know, you can program remotely. We can have our meetings by telephone. And at this point in time, people are doing a lot of programming on paper and then they only, you know, take their programs to the mainframe, like, or to rent, they rent time on a mainframe to test the program after they've, you know, written it out on paper because computer time was so expensive. And so she has this really robust workforce of women technical experts working for her. And she goes on to do all of this really important programming for government and for industry from the outside, right? Like they wouldn't keep her as an employee and let her do this work as a direct employee, but she's able to kind of use, well, use their own sexism to her advantage and get in as a contractor. And I should mention that, you know, the way she gets these contracts early on is that she doesn't use her 
real name. Well, she uses her nickname, which is Steve, not Stephanie. When she's signing her letters, Stephanie, she's not getting any replies. And then her husband says, well, why don't you try signing them Steve, Shirley? And she does. And that starts getting her foot in the door and at least getting her into the position where she can, you know, she can convince people to hire her. Mm -hmm. So she sort of worked her way to prove herself through all these, you know, hacks, like not using her real name because she was a woman. And even today, we still see these things where women just remain at the lower levels of the computing industry because they're seen as less able leaders, even still. What are some of the things based on your research and all that you read about this, that we can do to change this? Do you think the idea of role models is crucial in this? I think that role models can be really, really important. I mean, I know that it helps me when I see other women succeed, when I see other white women and women of color succeed, like I feel, you know, good for them. And I also feel like well, yeah, that's kind of a pattern that maybe I can follow. And also, you know, we help each other, you know, like other women who are in academia, for instance, which is still also a pretty sexist field, we help each other. So if somebody gets to a higher level, they, you know, they reach down and try to help the rest of us up. And now that I'm, you know, getting sort of to like the mid-level of academia, I do my best to reach back down and help folks who are, you know, just starting their careers. So I think that role models are important. I think that like, you know, solidarity along the lines of, you know, whatever identity group you're a part of, especially if that's a minoritized identity group, I think that that's really important. Just like we have to get the media on our side and to stop talking about this issue as though women are somehow not interested in technology or not interested in computing and that, oh, if only we could get women to be more interested, if only we could get more women into computing, then there would be you know, more women at higher levels in the field. Well, that's just not true. Like we have seen time and time again, how women go into these fields and they get pushed out and how people of color go into these fields and they get pushed out in large numbers. So I think that there's a conversation starting today in like sort of the popular discourse about structural inequality on like all levels of society and technology. And I'm hopeful that that's going to help us start to address these problems in a more, maybe a, you know, a more productive way than we have been. Yes, and more at the higher levels in the companies, right? Exactly, exactly. Because as you know, one of the things about getting to the high levels in, for instance, a computing company and a technology firm is that once you get to those higher levels, you don't need to program anymore. In fact, you probably won't even get to touch code. You're at the level of management. And what that means is you have now sort of different responsibilities and different skill sets, which are actually portable across different fields. And so one of the things that needs to be done and has sort of been being done to a certain extent is getting, for instance, white women and people of color from these management levels in other industries where they're not as discriminated against to make lateral moves over into technology 
firms. And I think that's really important because like you point out, it's not just a matter of getting more women into the field. It's a matter of getting more women into positions of power so they can actually make change and so that the structures in place actually change. Yes. And related to the other portion of getting girls and women into computing, what are your thoughts on initiatives that are specifically targeted to them? I think that they're getting better. I think that for a while, it's been kind of a mixed bag. And I think that's actually because some of these initiatives were not necessarily done in good faith. They were done because companies wanted to market diversity. They wanted to say like, oh, look how diverse we are, or look what we're doing for, you know, people of color, look what we're doing for women to help them get into tech. And it was really more about marketing than actually doing something to change the industry. But there are lots of groups like, for instance, NCWIT, which is the National Coalition of Women in Information Technology, has been doing like a ton of work on this that's actually very productive and really important. And so I think that as we get away from this idea of diversity as like just a marketing slogan, and we actually get into thinking about structural change, that things are getting better. And there's definitely tons of people you know, as you know, who are working on this from all different levels, like you're working on this, I'm working on this, whole organizations of academics are working on this. So I think things are getting to sort of a critical mass. We're hopefully going to see real change. Yes. And I see this happening, especially after companies were asked to release their numbers and sort of now they're being forced to lead by example, instead of just putting money into organizations that get more girls in computing, they now have to, they are accountable of like, oh, last year it was 10% women and now 5%, like something's going wrong in the company. I think that was a big step. Yeah, I agree. I think that's so important when companies are, you know, either willingly or unwillingly, they have to start becoming more transparent about, for instance, how many like women engineers they're even employing and also how much they're paying them in relation to the men who are doing similar or the same jobs. I think it's terrific that the women engineers at Google, for instance, have gotten together and said, look, we're being underpaid in relation to our male peers. And we are going to actually, we're going to make a federal case about this. And um, I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. Well, Mar, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. (laughs) 